0: Welcome to Bass Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort
1: zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Fast Lane with Sarah Jane. Today, my guest again is someone I have never met until today. And that is usually an exciting thing for me. And her name is Laura Frizzo. And I found her. I was actually reading a book and she was the police chief in the book. And to be honest with you, I don't know what I was expecting when I think of police chief. I really don't. But I, there's pictures in the book and I open I open the pictures and I see her and I literally went, oh, because you look more like you'd be like a fitness model than like, I don't know, but you're, you're a beautiful person. And I was like, wow. And then I read the book and not only is she beautiful, but she's super smart. She has great gut instinct and reading the book, she was super inspirational and obviously encourages people to do better, live better and be better. And so I wanted to talk to her. So welcome Laura to my show.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm very thankful to be here. Thanks for having me and inviting me. And um, I could respond quickly to, um, you know, your thoughts as you open the book. As you open the book and look to the picture of me, and I I feel like um, I've seen both sides of this, this whole first sight and kind of, you know, people making judgment based on what they see. You know, I was born and raised the only girl of, you know, I had three brothers. And we kind of lived out in the woods and I grew up fishing and and riding dirt bikes and definitely looked like a tomboy. I mean, I wasn't, um, you know what you would consider to be a very cute kid. I wasn't the first pick for anybody, you know, for, you know, asking girls getting asked to a dance or or anything like that. And I didn't really care because like I said, I was more of a tomboy and, and I really didn't care about that. But, um, I think as I got older, um, you know, you grow up and you change, your appearance changes. And I think, you know, people start seeing me differently. But I I mean, I'm still me seeing the world the way I saw it as that tomboy. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it was really um interesting watching the shift in my interaction with people as I got older and people tend to find you maybe attractive, which, you know, again isn't something that I found in myself, but it, it was interesting seeing my the reaction. Okay, so being taken seriously as an attractive woman versus, you know, a woman who might not be as attractive is, it's really incredible (laughs) to have experienced. So that's, you know, another topic, maybe.
1: I, I think that is a really, really valid point. And when I first wanted Laura to join me, it was primarily to talk about the book because the book was really good. Between then and now, there's a lot more to Laura than the book. And I do want to get to the book, but I don't want to start there. Because Laura actually has a podcast, which I've listened to. And it is called Cops Anonymous Podcast. And at first, I'm thinking, you know, it's it's more for cops. And it is not, actually. I don't think... I mean, it is for cops, yes. But I think this is a really good podcast for the average Joe. And this is why I think that. Because... I think we all have preconceived notions about any type of occupation, right? But we don't think about a lot of the emotional sides of a lot of the stuff, like the teachers who have to deal with the kids, you know, the troubled kids or the kids who don't have a good home life. You know, we don't think about them. We don't think about what the cop is thinking or feeling when they have a traumatic event at work either. And I really appreciated this podcast because my dad was actually a highway patrolman. And in one of the podcasts, it talks about one of the officers he was going to be shot at and he had to save his life and and someone was killed. And then in another one, officer responded to a suicide and she knew the family. And that one hit really close to home because my dad had found one of my brother's friends Um, Same is as my brother who took his life. My dad also came upon an accident with one of my brother's friends who he had died. And that was in late 80s, early 90s when there wasn't any support. And listening to these letters that you read, a person has to have support for this. This is not what you're trained for. You're not trained to take a life. You're trained to protect lives, but you do what you have to do. And so that's a hard, that has got to be, a super hard part of your job.
0: Right. And, and, you know, we've only released four episodes at this point um, because, you know, we all have jobs. We all just kind of, the idea actually popped into my head when I, Jeremy and I were laying in bed and I was, I had just done an interview for another podcast and just, I try to do as many, you know, I say yes as often as I can, just because I think it's good to get this positive feedback out there regarding, you know, what police do that you know, that needs to be brought to light. People need to be aware. And unfortunately it's hard because a lot of police officers like myself never want to share what they see and and experience because they don't want to put that burden on anyone. So for me, I spent my, you know, over 20 years of my career, I'd go to work, I came home and and I was mom. And I was a good mom and a good caretaker very good, but I did notice a lot of things lacking due to that profession. You know, you just you're always on guard. You don't smile as much. You're not, you know, so things you don't even realize as a police officer that you do bring home when you think you're leaving everything behind. You're still bringing you're still bringing that home. And I'll, I'll be honest with you right now. You know, Jeremy and I are laying in bed, and I said, I want to do something for police officers, but also for people to also listen to and be able to understand a little bit of what's going on in the mind of a police officer because no one ever covers that. You know, it's, let's talk about this case or let's talk about that. And, and then it's, let's bash the police because they didn't handle this correctly. So you think, because you watched, you know, a snippet of a video on social media mm-hmm. um, and we're going to go ahead and assume and judge police officers. And, and, and I just thought, you know, enough, enough is enough. And mm-hmm. we need to just do something. And so because of my experiences and what I went through with the case, plus with what I encountered from my administration, I literally had a lot of police officers from around the country reach out to me and, and just personally contact me and say, listen, you know, I know what you're going through. I've been through this, or, you know, I, this is my experience and shared with me just cause they knew I could understand. And so these contacts I still have for years and I just went ahead and started contacting these people and saying, will you share your story? Will you share your story? And and they've been awesome. So I think that a good point to bring up is that, you know, I have spouses of law enforcement officers that are friends of mine as well. And since the podcast has come out, you know, they've listened to it. And it's been great to hear that them saying, you know, my husband has started talking since he listened to the you know, this episode Mm -hmm. or, you know, my husband listened to this episode and he broke down and, and never in 20 years has he talked and he's, and that is the best therapy for them. And that is the whole purpose is, Hey, you know, I listened to this story and it brings tears to my eyes because it reminds me of this, you know, incident I had that I've had a hard time dealing with. And then we have Greg Young who's been counseling, you know, police officers with PTSD for 40 years. And, He's there to say, contact me directly. I'm here for you, and and you know we've got some you know military personnel listening that mm-hmm. have said that it's been helping them, and they and that just like if it's one person that is helping, that means everything to me. Mm-hmm. So the root seller, the suicide that you're talking about was actually my story, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I mean we just started out, so I said I'm going to use you know let's use a couple stories if we need to, you know, just to get people to listen and start contributing. And so the root seller the was actually a story of mine. So.
1: Wow. Yeah. That one had to be difficult, especially since uh, he was a friend of your son's, right? Or a friend of your daughter. Wasn't it really close in age to one of your children?
0: Close in age to my kids, my own kids. But um, uh, the, the father worked for the Department of Public Works for the city I worked for. And so we knew each other. We worked together. We were small areas, so we knew each other. And he was very good friends with my chief. knew Had known him much longer than he knew me. But at any point, you know, you know, when, he, when I got the call, I was only two blocks from the house. And I mean, I heard it and I knew it was his house as I pulled up. And I thought, you know, somebody must have accidentally, you know, discharged their weapon and we have a, uh, you know, injury to the foot or whatever. So when I arrived there and knowing him, you know, I walk up the steps and he, he comes out the door and I'm like, what's, you know, what's up? And I'm not going to say his name, but the look on his face alone was like, okay, you know, this is something's wrong. Grab my arm, start pulling me through the house, saying my kid shot himself. And I'm literally being pulled, you know, down into this root cellar not knowing what I'm going to see. You can't plan how you're going to handle a situation like that. You can't mm-hmm. know what you're going to see. You just you just have to be brave and courageous and, and take care of it as you come upon it. And there's many, I mean, I've had many situations like that in my career. And I know many um, officers out there have had the same experiences where each, I mean, you could literally be sitting in your office joking around about a stupid prank, maybe somebody played or or some you know call that you went on that was kind of entertaining, and suddenly you're being sent to something like this, and it's just the switching back and forth and and knowing that you can't you can't possibly be prepared for any of it. Mm-hmm.
1: then you have it's hard enough for you to see what's going on, and then you have the mom you you hear her talking, and that has to make it just way worse, right. Well,
0: you know as soon as he got me down into that root cellar the first thing I did see of course it's kind of dark going down there and then there's like a you know a big opening where you can see light and that's inside the root cellar and in that opening the first thing I did see was I mean I could literally just see the back of him like his he was on his hands and knees and I could see his legs and I could see the mother on her knees over him just crying and I thought oh my lord you know what's Happened, of course, but it's not like slow motion. Everything is still moving in real time. So Mm -hmm. of course I, you know, the one thing you want to do is be sure that you're taking control and they know that they can trust you. You're going to take control immediately. You don't want to walk in there with a look on your face of, oh my gosh, what do I do? Or you don't even want to have that look on your face, even if you're thinking it. So, you know, you walk in, okay, you know, you guys, give me a minute, just give me a minute. And I wanted them to leave because, you know, you know, in the back of your mind, there's nothing I can do, but you don't want them to know that. And Mm -hmm. so also, you know, it's hard, you know, can you save him? What can you do? Help him, help him. And it's a lot of pressure to be put on you. And then at the end of the day, knowing, you know, I I knew when I walked in there, there was nothing I could do. I did the best I could, but you still hear those voices over and over again saying, help him, you know, help Mm -hmm. him, save him. Can you save him? And those are the. I think those are the things that kind of linger with you. And and as I said in in the podcast, you know the um, the parents, I they they go upstairs. Like I ask them to just give me a moment as I'm waiting for EMS to arrive. And I I know I go to feel for that pulse, then I go to 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 you know put my hands on the face and and pull them back right away because it's like. You know, I mean, I was a fairly new officer at the time and uh, young. It was like, you know, I guess kind of I would explain it like the first time I broke a rib on an elderly woman when I was doing CPR and doing compressions and felt that ribs, you know, break for the first time. And the same thing. It was like, you want to pull your hand back like, oh my gosh, you know. But as time goes on with these things and as you become a more seasoned officer and you handle more and more of it you become insensitized to to it. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. We don't really know. I mean, but it happens to all of us. Mm
1: -hmm. When you were talking about how the police... Well, first of all, there was a couple. One, someone was going to get ran over by a car and he shot to save his own life. Otherwise, he was going to get hit by the car. I mean, he would have died. That's pretty fair to say, right? I
0: think Jeremy was actually talking about his own personal experience during the... um, And yes, Jeremy... um, it's funny that we ended up getting paired together because we are so much alike as far as our sympathy, our empathy levels, our passion for the job and what we've been through. Um, but yeah, he was definitely put into a situation where he he had to make an instant decision. You know, it's someone's threatening to take your life and, and, you know, he had to make that decision immediately. It's just something you have to do.
1: And he was a seasoned officer at that time.
0: Yes, he was actually, I, I believe it was his first day sworn in to DEA as a TFO, we call him. So a TFO is like, you know, someone assigned to a city uh, police department, a county police department, different agencies, states, all come together into these TFO programs, these initiatives for DEA. And they they just basically work for the DEA through their department, through their agency. And so that's what he was doing. And it was his first day sworn in.
1: So with that happening to him, this is kind of what I was thinking about after I heard two of the uh, podcasts. So I think that people just normally hold police officers to a higher standard, right? Because you are protecting the law. Where I'm getting hung up here is if we hold you to a higher standard and you make a decision like that to save your own life, you would have made that decision to save mine or to save Bob's down the road. Why is it, since we already value what you do and hold you to that higher standard, why are you so much more questioned than the average person?
0: I roll this around in my own mind over and over again, especially over the past few months um, with everything that's been happening since Mm the Floyd. Even in my own career, I mean, I, we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, Our job is out there for me, for instance, getting into this job was, I had been through an awful lot. I, I, I saw so many women met so many women and men that had gone through so much. And I saw that there was a really a need for women or officers, but, you know, unfortunately women are more sympathetic or empathetic in these careers or in these occupations than you find the men will be there. They tend to have more of a macho, you know, higher testosterone type uh, way of handling things. Um, and sometimes the way that men handle those things can be counterproductive because, you know, it's sometimes better to have the gift of gab and be able to talk your way um, out of a situation and, and instead of going in there, you know, ready to, you know, fight it out or whatever. And so... Um, I think for... Hold on, I just lost my train of thought for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? Let's go back.
1: Well, I don't... Why? Oh, why? Granted, There's good cops, bad cops, good teachers, bad teachers, good business owners, bad business owners. We, we know that. And I'm not saying that stuff shouldn't be questioned because, you know, I mean, sometimes it, bad things happen. But like right. in Jeremy's instance, he said that that took five years out of his life to get it under control. And I'm... <sighs>
0: That's what, what I've been. And I and I do apologize with the distractions going on around me. It's just like now someone's vacuuming outside the door. But, but what I have seen is I think that people that are not police officers, you know, there's like this line. You have the people that are always so appreciative for police officers and thankful they're there, which, of course, tends to lean more towards like an the elderly crowd, you know, the population of people that are alone, elderly, sickly. And depend on us. And then there's the, you know, the people that depend on us that don't want to admit publicly that they depend on us. Because, you know, a good example would be maybe, you know, people living in um, a, a neighborhood that maybe is, you know, infiltrated with gang activity or whatever. So they're afraid. But they're telling, you know, the police, thank God you're here, but man, they don't want anyone to know they're saying that or that they support it. So you have them on the inside saying, please stay here. Please, we need you. Um, you're saving us. You're saving our children. And then you have the people on the outside of that circle that are saying, please need to stay out of there. It's just, it's so crazy and contradictory. And unfortunately, until you get this group of people to stand up, come forward together, which will probably never happen because they're afraid, and say, this is you know, crap. You're, you're coming down on police officers for maybe specifically targeting a certain race or whatever. And they're not. I mean, I see it firsthand where I am now. I've seen it my whole career. Jeremy has as well. But who has, you know, the balls to stand up and say, you know, we're not targeting these areas. We go here because this is where the highest crime is happening. And it's not us creating the crime. It's us there trying to defuse the situation. We're sitting on the street corner in this specific block because of the gang activity happening
1: because mm-hmm.
0: there was a homicide you know there was a murder last week of this gang member and our intelligence tells us that gang is going to retaliate and they're going to be doing it in this area so we're situating our patrol cars in this area to protect these innocent citizens
1: mm-hmm.
0: and people on the outside that don't know all of this inside stuff are saying you're targeting you're profiling you're you know and, and it's very frustrating. This is happening all over the country. I mean, it's, um, I think that, bless you, I think that people have an idea, like if they've had a bad encounter or their family member has with police officers that they just have a bad uh, outlook on them and they will do anything to tear them down. I think that, that's one situation. For me personally, I remember, I remember arresting a guy for domestic violence years back. And of course, I arrested many people for domestic violence, but this one stands out because I didn't go there on my own court. I was called by the woman who was afraid for her life, right? So I respond. I mean, I arrest the guy. The, the woman has been beaten up and I take him to jail. I'm always good to the people you know, that I've taken to jail. It wasn't. I wasn't disrespectful. It's just, it was my job. And his father, who was kind of like a predominant man in the community never forgave me for arresting his son and I mean it was probably my first or second year there so for the remaining you know almost 20 years of my career I had to deal with him constantly attacking me in the community constantly saying horrible and I didn't even know this man and it was like this is what uh, this is on a small scale what the country is is encountering with police officers in general that's one type of scenario or one way to present it is that situation. I don't even know this person, but I arrested his son for domestic, which I had to do. I had a victim that I was protecting and that's, so now you're going to, you know, fault me. You're going to, you know, call me bad things or crucify me to the public for the rest of my career. And there's nothing I can do about it and, and insane things that aren't true or, and we all have had to go through it. I mean, you know, people can say what they want about us. They can make up lies and and tear us down. And we just have to try and stay strong and and push forward because we're doing it for the innocent victims that need us.
1: Yeah. I had someone tell me once that my dad, he was out, they were out and about and he had a heart attack. And the ambulance had to come in and get him and whatever. So they had to move these tables back. And this guy told me well, so-and-so was there that night and he said he didn't want to move because he deserved it because he had picked him up a time or two for speeding. And so I said, what? And so he, he said again, and I said, so he was breaking the law by speeding and my dad, which that is his job to give people a ticket if they're speeding, he deserved to die because he was breaking the law. Like that makes no sense. And same with the situation that you just said. Right. If your son was breaking the law and abusing someone, how how does that not apply to you?
0: Right. And I'm sorry about your dad and I'm sorry that he had to go through that. I'm sorry for all police officers in this country that are I mean it's been bad it's bad enough on its you know on its own and then you take into consideration how bad it's been over the past few months and it's a frightening time to be a cop right now. And I know a lot of people are getting out when they can as soon as they can or are doing as little as they can because they're afraid for their own safety. You know, they're they're out there trying to protect the innocent human, you know, beings and they're afraid for their own lives, which they get into the job knowing that their lives are at risk. But when you throw in the added threats of people gunning for them every day, it's it's horrifying.
1: So mm-hmm. well, let's talk about your journey and how you moved up the ranks in your small town. <laughs> I don't know how big, I think your town is bigger than mine, but I have, I know that where, since it was the, you know, I read about the murder that it was a small place for like this kind of thing to happen, correct?
0: I think it was about 4,000 or close to 4,000 population when I started. So my story is I, I grew up in a uh, neighboring town that was even smaller about a 2,000 population. And I grew up in a family with all brothers. I was definitely not a typical girl. I was kind of a weirdo. I mean, just because I think I was a weirdo because I didn't like doing girl things and I didn't understand girl drama. And, you know, my house was loud and emotional and Italian. And I think that was another thing too. My mom was born in, in Chicago and raised in Milwaukee. And I think that, People, you know, up in that small area where she ended up moving with my dad. It's small clicky town, definitely not used to the way we were. So we just were kind of, you know. I grew up. My brothers are same as me to this day. Not real social, sociable. Just, you know, we all enjoyed um, athletics and playing sports and just, like I said, fishing. You know, riding dirt bikes, whatever. And as I got older, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as far as a career. I was good in my business classes. I really never thought about being a police officer in high school. My brother had, you know, he's six years older than me, my oldest brother, and he had already gone off and graduated and went into law enforcement. And because I was good in like shorthand, which is like obsolete now, but um, I ended up going to college for court recording. So I got a degree in that. I moved down to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I was pregnant with my first daughter at that time and I started working at a freelance firm. Hated it. Hated it. Sorry. I am just, I can't be in a room where I have to be quiet and. Uh, it's just, I can't do it. I couldn't do it. So I ended up taking a test and getting a job at Grand Rapids Police Department working in communications. So I liked it so much that, you know, during that time, I decided to go through the academy and, and become a police officer. So I did that in 1994. And then I ended up, you know, moving back up to the Upper Peninsula to look for jobs there. You know, I, I was divorced and I had the two girls. My youngest daughter, by the time I graduated from the academy, she was not even a year old. So I knew that I was going to need some help, you know, having to work shift work. But I also knew this was the right decision for me to make because I needed to have a job that could support my kids and provide for them. So I, um, that's why I, you know, I also chose to, and it was hard. I mean, pushing myself into the academy, I, I had to take out a, a loan, and I was so poor. I just remember how poor I was. And that's why I, I think about what, when I watch my kids now, like, cause they're all of the young adults now and I watch them struggle. And I remember what a struggle it was for me, but you just keep pushing forward and you just get through each day. There were many days where I cried and thought, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And you just get through that day and, and the next day you'll feel better, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up getting a job in uh, Marquette County. I interviewed there and got hired but a week later I got hired at Iron River. Iron River was you know 15 miles from my parents versus Marquette which was an hour and a half away and I made the decision to stay with Iron River even though it was so close to home and I it was so small and I, didn't, I thought, well, I can always move to a bigger city as the girls get a little older or whatever. And of course, I ended up staying there for my whole career. So when I started, they had just cleaned out the department. Um, there was some kind of issues there with the prior chief and some of the officers, and they they were all fired. And so when I started, there was a chief and a sergeant, and then myself and another guy got hired at the same time. And then within a year, we were up to seven full-time, and that was the biggest we were. So we weren't as you know, a very big department. Mm-hmm. So I stayed there and just, you know, basically worked four different rotations in my in my shifts. I worked a day shift, afternoon, midnight, and then we had what was like an overage, uh, overlapping shift. And I did that for, I don't know, 18 years until my chief left. We ended up going through financial cuts, whatever. So we were like downsized. And I ended up um, applying for the chief's position, and um, that's you know a whole nother story. The chiefs prior to me had all been kind of appointed, especially you know obviously if they had been an officer with the department like my chief was for you know 15 years. I think he was the an officer with the department, and when it came time for a new chief, they he applied and they just appointed him. When I applied, we it was a whole new ball game. Um, you know, because there was no women ever. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there were no women, female chiefs in the entire Upper Peninsula prior. So this was a big move, right? But I think that it was. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to be responsible for hiring her if she screws up, or you know, I don't want to. So they ended up hiring two chiefs. They had a panel that they put together and conducted all these interviews to make a you know decision, and that way they could blame those guys, I guess. But. They um, they selected me, so um, I remember. It got its first female police chief, and I honestly loved 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 my job. I loved it, loved it, and and it was nice having that position. You know, you don't become a chief or you shouldn't for the power of it and, and what you know you, it does for your ego. You do it because now you have the ability to do so much for your community, and that was the great part.
1: And how long were you chief before the Chris Reagan murder?
0: Oh my gosh. Six months. (laughs) Yeah. I I had become the chief and it was like uh, December. So December of 2013. And then in June, so you do the math because so in June I picked up, it was a baby homicide case that I picked up and Then in October, I picked up Chris Regan. So I got the two cases within July, August, four months.
1: Had you had a murder case before that?
0: No, Mm -mm. no.
1: And you'd been with the department how long at that time? 18 years?
0: Years, yeah. So we're, you know, if you take a look at the Upper Peninsula, I mean, it's, I'm not saying, I mean, there was a homicide in the county, within the county. um, There have been, not a lot. I think, you know, there was one actually maybe the year before there was actually one in Iron River, maybe two years, you know, three years prior, but it had been, a, a, you know, a few years prior, there was a, a homicide in Iron River, but I didn't handle that. I had not, in fact, I had nothing to do with it because my chief at the time, I was actually on midnight shift when that took place. And my chief at the time took the case and turned it right over to the Michigan state police. So our department didn't handle it, you know, at all. I think that, you know, there was help given, I don't know even how much help I, it was like I hadn't, I knew really nothing about that case. So, but that's how things went. I mean, when you're a small department, usually that's what they would do. We don't have detectives. We don't have a lot of personnel. We're short staffed. You know, my chief back then was, was crying out for, additional officers with seven, because we were we were understaffed. And then I ended up, you know, with four. <laughs> I had four full-time, and I, I had three part-time. And, but I, I never once, never once thought about um, not handling that case. Never. It was never an option.
1: And there was some gut work involved in there. You have, You went with some of your instincts, because so what happens is a, a lady comes in and tells Laura that uh, her friend is missing and you just, you never thought it was a missing person case really from the get-go, did you? Like I, I'm leaving, like, like someone went into the woods and took his own life or just packed up and moved. You never thought about it in that aspect, correct? Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm in a, and right from the get-go, I didn't think she was so upset and she was so devastated and crying. And I thought, oh my Lord, this woman is so overreacting right now. <laughs> You know, this guy, okay, yeah, it might be odd. He left his car there and he would never leave his car. So you're saying and I have you have to trust your victims, even if in your mind you're thinking, you know, she's making too much. No, because the victims usually know, you know, they know their people well enough to be concerned. So you have to like be, you know, respectful of that. So I did think and I did tell her, and like, you know, I probably rolled my eyes to myself, but it, let's let's see if he comes back. I'm sure he got in the car with somebody, maybe. And then you know, really, my next thought to myself was, you know, she was saying he likes the woods, he likes to go hiking. He's not really from the area, so he could be lost out there. So let's get some dogs and, and check the area of his of his car just to be sure he didn't a you know get lost in the woods or b you know maybe he did kill himself. And so let's make sure we really scour that area. So those were my initial thoughts.
1: They were. And when you went through this case, did you have family kind of in your ear and contacting you all the time? Or did you just... Or was it more like you took it and ran with it? You mean like his family? Yeah, because sometimes like... Sometimes you'll hear that a parent or whatever will call the call the police station once a day, once a week to make sure everything's being followed up on. Did you have people in your ear all the time?
0: No. In fact, Terry even, you know, she... Terry wasn't like that anyway. Terry is a very conservative, laid-back, kind-hearted person, and she was very concerned. And, and so I would try, every time I would learn something or, you know, even if I didn't know anything new, I would try to touch base with her every few days just because I knew she was concerned. And I know how that feels to be the victim or somebody gunning for the victim that's, you know, wants to know what's happening. And so I wanted to try and keep her in the loop. As far as Chris Riggin, the victim, it took us a while because the one thing that Terry O'Donnell had told us, um, and Terry is the woman who reported him missing, was that he had was kind of estranged from his kids. Recently had gotten back, to, you know, as far as a uh, bond, bonded with his oldest son, Chris Jr., in the last few months because they had planned to move together and to North Carolina. So they, um, but his youngest son he hadn't talked to in months. So the tricky part was, how do we find these kids? Where are they living now? When's the last time they talked to him? Because Chris's actual phone was missing. And so it was hard to to track him down. Chris was divorced. I really didn't know anything at that point about his ex-wife or family. Later on, I would learn that his parents were were already deceased, that he had an adopted sister who would prove to be a, a royal pain in my ass eventually. This was a sister he hadn't had contact with in years. And I think that, you know, once she found out her brother was missing and all this was going on, she contacted me and she was like the type that was like, like you're kind of describing, like calling me every day. She basically thought I was not capable because I I made the mistake of of saying, even though that when I did connect with the Reagan boys, they said, she has not been in my dad's life. He doesn't, he probably wouldn't even want you discussing this with her. I still felt the need to to keep her updated because it was his still his sister. Mm-hmm. And so out of respect, I said, you know, come in, we'll sit down, I'll explain things to you, but you have to keep these things confidential. And this is why. You need to be confidential because our vic- our suspects don't know that they're suspects at this point. It's very important that you do not share anything on social media, you know, blah, 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 give her the most feel. What does she do? She leaves there and the first thing she does is post on her Facebook about the couple that there's some suspects. And I immediately was like, take that off your Facebook right now, please. I mean, I know that Kelly Cochran was probably looking at her Facebook and, you know, looking at all the social media and they weren't in jail. I mean, so she got angry with me. There was a point where I had told her things were progressing. Jeremy and I had been working hard on this. And our goal was to get Kelly Cochran arrested by Chris Reagan's birthday. And, the birthday was coming and the sister was on my ass, you know, like, yeah, well, his birthday is coming and, you know, it's coming and you better do your job. And that's the way she talked to me. Now she did not talk like that to Jeremy at all. It was me. The birthday came and, and went and I believe we got her we had the warrant for her the day after his birthday. But anyhow, on the day of his birthday, she literally told me, I'm going to the media and I'm going to tell him everything. I'm going to release everything that you've told me, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you do that. And I said, well, make sure you get arrested for obstructing (sighs) justice. And I just couldn't believe it. So even after we got Kelly arrested and got her arraigned and everything, and she's finally in jail and we did a press release, she turns around and she sends like flowers and, and chocolates to Jeremy at his department. You know, like he did it when actually, <laughs> you know, and it was like she was just that type of woman. She was just, but there, I mean, it was hard for me at times because I had to continuously bite my tongue. But again, when we're talking about this is what cops go through, I'm out there in the woods. I don't, I haven't had a day off in two years. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would take a day off here and there, but I had a vacation in almost three years, you know, and I'm putting in sometimes over a hundred hours a week and I, I'm, I'm just focusing on this while I'm trying to do, run my department and everything else. And, and that's how you get treated. It's just like a huge slap in the face over and over again. But you just try to like you know, put that off to the side because your, your focus and your goal is to bring justice to these boys and their father. And that's, that's really what kind of just can be going.
1: And when, how long was it until you had your suspects kind of pegged?
0: Oh my gosh. So let's see the um, October 27th was the day that she reported him missing. And by the following day, I kid you not, even though I said, I'm sure he's gone, blah, blah, blah. The things that I had learned in 12 hours after taking that initial report from Terry, I knew they know they, I don't know who did it if it was him because he was a jealous husband or her, but based on what I learned in just a 12 hour period I knew that they knew that they were involved, even though I still want, even though my mind was telling me that my, you know, my intuition was telling me that I still thought, but maybe he was, well, maybe he got lost. So we don't want to rule any of that out. And I, I didn't, you know, even though that was initially my, my thought.
1: And you got to know know those two suspects quite well. And did you just have a, Whenever you had interaction with them, was it just kind of offsetting? Like, was it just uncomfortable? Like, you knew, you knew they did it, and they just were kind of—I don't—I don't know how to describe it. You know, like the energy you get from someone. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay.
0: Immediately, and I—I I, so the I didn't talk to Jeremy. I didn't meet Jeremy until you know over a year after I had already been working on this case, and they had moved back to Indiana, and I was determined that. I was going to find somebody to keep working from Indiana with me and cooperating, communicating. I I needed to get their DNA. I needed to get someone to keep an eye on them. And like I knew, I remember having this discussion with Jeremy. Like I've done a million and you know interviews, obviously not a million, but and I remember telling them, you know, I mean, I I do truly believe because I know it to be true that you know cops have intuition or they don't, Um, and everyone's got some bit, you know, a bit of an intuitive nature, but. Some is very intensified, and I believe I've always had that. So a lot of times I would do an interview. I I could walk into the interview room and feel, I could just feel like this energy from, you know, the people that I'm interviewing, whether it was a, you know, uh, you know, I did a lot, unfortunately, of interviews with um, child victims of sexual assaults and, you know, the silent victims that, that can't talk for themselves or whatever. And when I'd walk in a room and I'd sit down with the suspect I could just look at them and ask a question and I could feel their energy. And I, I, even if I never got a confession, I knew. And I I told Jeremy, I said, you know, the first day I walked in the room with her and I I kept getting this vibe, you know, like I could feel this chemistry and it's something I have never in my life ever experienced. I've never felt this before. I can't describe it. And he said, "That's, that's because it's pure evil. And those were his exact words. So I thought, yeah, she is evil. He said, no, you really are getting thats that you're describing that vibe. And I've never encountered it before. He had never encountered it before. And he said the same thing when he went in the room with her. He felt the same. That's what it is. And it's really you know, unfortunate. I, it's not unfortunate, but many police officers have never experienced that feeling. I know that I would have never in my entire career with all the interviews I did. I had never experienced anything like that. And I knew every time I had contact with her and every time I had, but after a while of having numerous contacts with her and, and getting to know her, you know, learn about her and how she did things a little bit, I was able to kind of put that feeling or that, you know, that evil chemistry off to the side and focus because I knew that I had to like overcome that and not let it Overcome me so that I wasn't able to ask questions I need to or watch for responses I needed to watch for, if that makes sense.
1: Did you feel that evil with him?
0: No, I didn't. Jason, I felt with him a typical suspect, like a typical feeling I would have when I walked in. Like I knew he was lying to me when he started crying and saying, you know, I have all these physical issues in my back and da da da. These were all his distractions for me to kind of make me feel sorry for him instead of um, asking him questions about whether or not he killed somebody. So that was his deflection. And so, I mean, I, I've dealt with people like him a million times, you know, he, there's people that kill people that aren't evil, you know, like, you know, so even if he had killed Chris or um, told me he killed Chris, I still wouldn't have gotten that same feeling from him. It was a totally different feeling.
1: So, Did they both plan this or was it really one versus the other? Was it her idea and she got him to go along with it or how did they get this concocted?
0: Well, her version, of course, everything was really her version after Jason died because he wasn't there to say any differently. So her version was that as they got, after they got married, they made a pact that, you know, and and I can't remember exactly, you know, which way it went. It was like, if she had an affair with somebody, she had to kill that person, and if he had an affair with person with somebody, he had to kill that person, or vice versa. and i don't I don't believe that 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 ever happened. I think that they they killed people. I think that I don't know how many that they killed. i would I would have to say, definitely Chris Reagan was not there first. That was very evident to me from the get-go. I mean, two months into it. I knew that this was not the first time that these people had done something like this. I already knew that they were responsible for him being I, I couldn't say murdered because even though I knew he was not coming back, I couldn't say how or why or or whatever. I just knew that they were responsible. And I also knew that because of the way they presented themselves, the way that <laughs> they handled things, this wasn't the first time that was to any investigator or detective, it would be very apparent that this wasn't the first time for them. So they were well rehearsed. You know, later we would find out that, you know, they had both gone to school for forensics and she had actually gone and taken courses, college courses in psychology. And she just, you know, she was well rehearsed on, what if, you know, if I ever get questioned by law enforcement, this is how I handle this. So even the way that they did get rid of Chris Reagan I mean, she knew exactly what she needed to do to cover up any and all evidence of him being there. And, and just again, too, reading their text messages, I, I had access to all of that. And as I'm learning about them, reading all this stuff, you know, Chris Reagan is, is killed on October 14th. And I watched the shift in their communication to each other from her belittling him and berating him all the time. All of a sudden, Chris is gone. And now she's in love with him, and she's, you know, referring to him as handsome. And it was like a one hundred and fifty percent switch of of how she treated him. So all of these things, you know, and there's so much that came into play for me when I sat and thought about it. Definitely led me to believe that Kelly's the one that wanted to perform these these murders. Jason would do anything for Kelly, and he would. And, and I think that. The reason that he was having so many issues mentally was because I think that he was so afraid of getting caught. And I think that they had never even come close to being caught until the Chris Reagan case. And here I was not letting go. And she was like, it it didn't really faze her. It was a game to her. But to him, it was literally killing him mentally.
1: And you can tell when you look at the photos in the book, every photo of her when you guys had her... Just come in for questioning or whatever she is smile she has this smirk that yeah. it just it kind of gives you the creeps when you see that smirk
0: right and it's like when i I ended up talking to her brother, it was probably a month or so after they had they took off out of Michigan and went back to Indiana, I mean they left everything behind. He had like you know twelve pot plants or something, they were beautiful plants in the basement they left everything and went and I ended up getting a, and that's why social media is great. Sometimes I ended up getting a message from this woman who said, you know, cause we had done several press releases on, on the case. And she said, I just want to tell you that you're on the right track with Kelly and Jason. And that was it. And I'm like, okay, who's this woman? So I kind of look her up and she's from Merrillville, Indiana, and which is right where they live, you know, and, So I reached out to her and it wasn't right away because I didn't, I didn't go in and think, okay, who is this woman? It was like a couple weeks later. And so she said, well, my daughter dates Kelly's brother. And I was like, Oh, awesome. You think he would talk to me? You know, I don't know. He might. And you know, maybe not whatever. Well, after working on her for a little bit and her talking to him, he decided to talk to me eventually But he wanted me to have, you know, an agreement written up that I could never disclose that I talked to him, you know, ever, no matter what, nobody could ever know and blah, 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 because he did, he was afraid of his own sister. So, and that was a a pretty good turning point too. And that was also before I started working with, with Jeremy. Um, But I did come down and use their police department and interview the brother. And I was actually working with the FBI at that point. So they Mm -hmm. came with me. So we meet him at the police department. And I mean, I didn't really know what he knew or what he could present at that point, but I figured let's just see what he has to say. So my question to him was, what did you all think when all of a sudden out of nowhere, Kelly and Jason show up back at your parents' house with their truck and and just a few items Mm -hmm. in the back of their truck? And he said, yeah, he said... Mm -hmm. My parents are like, What what's going mm-hmm. on? And Kelly tells them, you know, well, the Michigan cops won't leave us alone. They keep thinking that we have something to do with this guy who's missing because I was friends with him. And I just let, you know, Colton, the brother, just keep talking. And and um she said, Yeah, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We used to go hiking together and stuff, and and they're doing a search warrant at our house and they totally destroyed our house. And they they were looking for blood in our truck. And she said And they might find blood in the truck, you know? Because one time when we went hiking, he cut his ankle and he got blood in the back of the truck. And he just kept talking. And I'm thinking, well, there you go. I mean, that to me was huge. And he didn't even realize what he said to me. Because that's something that you know she made up, or I knew that she made up because she thought, man, they're going to find blood in that truck. Mm -hmm. Right there that we're on the right track. That told me right. And this was only, it's March. So picked up the case in October. November, December, January, March. So five months later, you know, and after several interviews, asking if he's ever, you know, been in the house, asking, you know, numerous questions, every opportunity to say, you know, we went hiking once, he cut his ankle, there could be blood in the truck. And, and, and there's so much more to that, you know, and that goes along with that. I just could talk forever. But when she said, when the brother said that to me, I thought, you know, there you go. I mean, that was a huge piece of information for me. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And then we just continued, you know, from that point, continued to have her watched, have, um, I knew that her and Jason were, it didn't take them long, you know, for her to go back to living her old ways of, you know, they were out, um, partying at swinger bars in Chicago.
1: After they moved to Indiana.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they're originally from Indiana. They had only lived in Michigan for not even a year when all of this happened. And so, I, right from the get go, too, I mean, you ask, how soon did I know? And I, I told you within 12 hours, I learned all these things. Well, you know, as we kept learning things and, and time was going along, I told my secretary, I said, what brings a couple from, you know, near Chicago, from Indiana, all the way up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan when they have no family, no friends there, what brings them there? And so I told her, I said, do me a favor. And she was great on social media and stuff. So I said, you know check social media set, check the internet just see if you can see any unsolved homicides from you know the that area that they were living in around the time they moved i just felt i kept feeling like there was something you know that led them there you know in my interview with Kelly and Jason Kelly said well the reason we went up there is because you know Jason has all these medical issues and marijuana you could have you know a medical marijuana card in michigan and that's why he wanted to go there that was one of the reasons but after being down here in Indiana and realizing that the Michigan border is like only 40 miles away on this side, why would you go six and a half hours, seven hours? You know, it it just didn't add up. So, so my secretary, you know, goes ahead, she's checks it out. She says, you know, I found this, there's this unsolved homicide and it was, it occurred two months before they moved to Michigan in Merrillville. And it involved a guy that, you know, his dad actually, I think, owned this meat packaging plant. He was shot and put into a freezer and he was shot. So the vehicle scene, leave, that there was a vehicle in the in the area seen by some witnesses leaving, speeding away at the time. It occurred at like 4.30 in the morning or whatever. It was described as a white SUV type vehicle. And I thought, well, you know, Kelly and Jason drive a white extended cab pickup. So that's kind of close, you know? It would be like a year later, or not even a year later. One of the search horns we did their house where we recovered a ton of ammunition. And this certain type of ammunition that we recovered that didn't have a gun to go with. And that happened a lot. There was a lot of ammo recovered that didn't have weapons to go with the ammo. But this particular ammo was an off-brand, basically generic brand, rare. And that was the same type of ammo used to kill this guy in the meat packaging plant in Merrillville, which by the way is still unsolved. But there were several times I tried to call down and, and discuss the case with Merrillville PD and no one ever wanted to talk about it. That's that thing where we talk about, and maybe I think Michael talked about in, or Matthew talked about in the book, where egos get in the way of solving crimes. And that does happen. People are too, they're so you know protective of their case because they want all the glory instead of sharing information and solving a crime together. Yeah. And, and me, I mean, I needed to share info. I needed help. I needed I needed to reach out as many different people that would give me help and, and use their help because that's the only way you can solve things.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So does that happen a lot? Ego is getting in the way to solve crimes?
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, if you look at how many unsolved homicides there are in the United States alone. Um, And you look at how outnumbered actually law enforcement is to civilians, and and you look at Kelly Cochran and her situation, I'm sure that it was not as difficult as one would think to evade prosecution or even being considered as a suspect. And that's probably what happened uh, with her many times.
1: Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem that in this case, I don't know about any of your other cases, but in this case, it didn't seem like you or Jeremy had an ego in the way to solve this case. You just, you guys really just kind of took the bull by the horns and wanted this solved.
0: Right. I mean, I never, you know, I never had that ego in law enforcement. It was actually hard to even believe that for a long time, it took me a long time to believe that it was actually a reality. That you know, I'm trying to work with somebody from a different agency on something, and they are just not forthcoming, and it would always baffle me. Like, how you know, how do we solve things when we don't work together? We're in this. We're on the same team, right? But unfortunately, you know, and I understand that there are legitimate reasons why some investigators don't want to share. They don't want someone to screw up something they have worked so hard on, or ruin it, screw it up. And, but at the same time, unfortunately, there's a lot that want the glory and it's all about the ego. Jeremy was not like that. And as far as, you know, me having known him now for, you know, four years and working so closely with him, you know, he, he was all about sharing and, and, you know, you want to protect your case, but yet you also know that to get more out of it and do a better job solving your case, you need to to share. <laughs> yeah.
1: and was this the worst case that you've had? Definitely uh, the longest
0: case. It definitely was the most twisted case. It was, I wouldn't say, I mean the hardest case, because even though I didn't deal with homicides every day, I dealt with a lot of things that were difficult emotionally for me, you know, child abuse, child sexual assault and things of, you know, that nature, suicides, a lot of sadness, you know, drug overdoses. So, uh, and then there's just freak accidents that I handled that were, you know, some of those things will stick with me for forever as well. But yeah, I mean, I never had such, um, you know, in depth, and I don't think many investigators do. You can work your whole career at a department like Chicago PD or and be a homicide investigator and have a lot of homicides that you're investigating. But to actually pick up a case like this I think it's just so challenging and, and so you know hard to stick with because you I can't tell you how many times I hit dead ends and I was like I just want to be done with this I can't do this anymore I'm frustrated and I think that if I had the caseload that you know some of these bigger cities um, homicide detectives had they could have set this aside moved on to something else and then just kind of done with it and
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah it was definitely difficult to continue the focus.
1: In the pictures in the book, there's a picture of you at the end when you found Chris Reagan's body. And it it was it's hard to say it was a good picture because of what was in the picture, but it was a good picture because it showed your compassion that you had. And it kinda of, I think it kind of really wrapped it up and showed the tenacity that you had to solve the crime because you had never met him. But he must have really kind of became a friend in your mind because you were trying to help him. And then you look at the other pictures in the book and the lady who did the crime, Kelly, she is smirking like in all these pictures, you know, holding a Coke can and smirking at the at the detectives and whatnot. And those were not like that was hard to look at because it's like she was kind of smug about the whole thing. So you look at those pictures, how she was, and then you see that picture of you and you just really brought him to life there. And I I really liked that picture, even how sad it was. It was a good picture to show what kind of person that you are. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: And, you know, Kelly Cochran and I are obviously two completely different people, yeah. um, but for both of us um, probably had an equal amount of strength and determination, but just in different directions, in different areas. So I think that's what was probably so unique about the situation was that, you know, she and I do actually have that in common. And for her to actually be brought to justice by, another female that's kind of like her in a, in a, in a sense, probably really difficult for her and probably really bothered her ego. You know, probably was the toughest thing for her to deal with that. You know, these other things she did that she's never been held responsible for with the exception of, you know, her husband's death. But, you know, yeah, Chris Reagan, I, I never had met him. Didn't know he lived there. He hadn't lived in our town very long. Obviously we never, we just, never crossed our paths, never crossed. So however, working on that case, as long as I did and instantly from the beginning, trying to get to know him as quickly as I could, so that I could determine the best probability of what could have happened to him. It's almost like I did become, I knew him, you know, I kind of knew him. I mean, this, there is a lot of stuff that I read personal things that I, I basically had to invade his, his privacy, invade his life just so that I could, Figure things out, and so I actually had his picture and Kelly and jason cochran 's picture together on my calendar um, in my office and I had had them pinned to October fourteenth which was the last time he was seen from the get go and every day you know it was there so I went over you know looked at that picture while I went over documents, and I mean I just had his his face embedded in my brain so You know, almost two years later, a year and a half later, when we located the skull, and I—I mean, the first thing I really did is get down on my hands and knees, and and look, you know, look at into the eyes of the skull, into his eyes, and I'll never forget it. Was the teeth? You know, it was like that smile that I had looked at for a year and a half. There was, it was, there was no doubt in my mind. You know, that it was him. So it was. It's hard to explain because. There were so many times where I thought, you know, I'd be out looking, looking, looking in the woods. I'd be alone half the time and wondering if I'd be ready or prepared for what I might find. And I always wondered if I would be prepared. And it was almost kind of like a shock, you know, situation where I didn't really cry at first. You know, I I didn't. I just was kind of like taking it all in, you know, absorbing that this is really happening. And because I really never thought I was going to find him. I really, I didn't.
1: How much of him were you able to recover? Only his, only his skull. That was the only thing.
0: Yes. And it's bothersome, but you know, at least it's closure for the family. At least there's closure there. I think the thing that bothers me the most is, you know, wondering what happened to the rest of him because we know that there's no way she put that the rest of him was put there. You know, like I said, I, you know, earlier for us to have had trackers there, we had the FBI, you know, we had the state police, that area was gone over. So with a fine tooth comb. And in fact, we actually found a part of the cheekbone that was broken and had come out from, you know, whatever rolled the skull from its, you know, point of origin to its resting place. And for that to be found and nothing else, you know, speaks volumes. However, I will say that <laughs> in, when I found the skull and we noticed the lower jaw was missing, we knew it had to be there somewhere, right? We're assuming it's got to be here. So as i said, we find the little part of the cheekbone in, you know, this massive wooded area and nothing else. and And then a year later while we're filming the documentary, there's that lower jaw, you know? I mean, it's the whole thing. This whole case was incredibly spiritual. It really was. um, I've never had another case like that. I mean, I've had cases where I have felt a spiritual connection to people, but never like this. So I, I believe to this day that, um, whatever was left of him was, um, you know, there was a road trip that Kelly and Jason took two days after Chris was killed and it was a like middle of the night, drove for hours through Wisconsin and, and track, we actually were able to track their, um, their journey by means of their cell phones. And I believe that they were getting rid of everything kind of, you know, there's national forest, big forest, you know, areas there that I'm sure they were just randomly getting rid of things here and there, scattering them basically. And there probably wasn't really much left um, because, you know, my belief is that they did use acid, which she said they did. And we did find remnants of that. And so there probably wasn't a real lot left, but what wasn't burned in the fire pit, meaning his clothing and whatever else they used was probably scattered. And I, I have to believe that the skull was kept purposely. And that's why when, you know, we started doing our search warrants and getting close, moving in, I think that's when she panicked and got rid of that skull.
1: Do you think that was like a trophy for her for a bit? Yes. I got to digest that for a little bit. That's just weird. Like when you were saying that you were looking into his eyes, that just put tears in my eyes because... You know the skulls that I see are the ones for Halloween or or the average person. Probably anyone listening to this, those are the skulls that we're looking at. And
0: to be honest with you, I mean, it's not obviously a lot of investigators find skulls. You know, a lot of I mean, it's not like something uh, unique or whatever. I mean, it's a lot of investigators, homicide investigators, come upon skulls frequently. You know, you find dead bodies, you don't know who they are, or maybe you had somebody missing and you find them, but this was different. I mean, this was somebody that I had definitely grown attached to, like I said, spiritually. And also I had become attached to his children. Mm-hmm. And that really put emphasis on the whole situation for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you talk to his kids at all anymore?
0: I, you know, I just talked to his son yesterday. So I think we'll always be very good friends. We'll always be close. We'll always stay connected. Chris Jr. and I, Cameron was younger when all this happened, and He's just a different personality, and um, I would love to see him. I just don't keep in touch with him as much. So, Chris Jr. He's very—we um, keep in touch, and he's so much like his dad. It's you could take him and put him in a in a uh, forest for a year with no electricity or whatever, and he's he's just into the nature scene. And that's—I'm so glad that he's. I'm just so glad that he is living his life and and happy.
1: Did he make his move then without his dad?
0: No, he, he ended up staying. His his mom and his brother had been in Chicago. They moved to Chicago, and Chris Jr. was still living in Lower Michigan. And when everything happened with his dad, you know, he had already you know, he was not going to you know renew his his lease. He had already gotten rid of you know almost everything out of his apartment. He was just waiting to go. So when all this happened, he just up and moved with his mom in Chicago. To Chicago. So, and then, you know, after we got everything taken care of and they did receive some benefits from their dad, you know, which was great. It helped them start their lives there. So he's in Chicago. He's doing great. He's into art. He's just a, I have never met such a a, a unique and amazing young person in my life. He's Mm -hmm. got it together. And I'm really proud of him and, and Cameron, you know, both of them. So Chicago, like, you know, he's only, Forty-five minutes away from us, so we did not get together this summer. I went to see him last summer. He actually leased a small little office space for some of his art. I went to visit him there and took him to lunch. I just, we just have a connection. Like we, we definitely. It's like I feel like he's one of my kids. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And out of this grim story, it's a grim story, but it's a good story because you solved it. But it also has a love story at the end of it. So tell me about that.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things where I'm sure a lot of people, (laughs) you know, I worked with men in my career, my entire career. I never, there was never a love connection. You know, it's not, I wasn't one to actually ever want to connect with another police officer. I mean, why would I want to do that? (laughs) So I literally, it just happened and it was me uh, you know, I fell in love with him and I was pretty forward, forward about it. <laughs> so it, I, I laughs about it because we just were working and spending a lot of time talking about the case. And then, you know, we just started talking about our families a little bit and just the way that he talked, you know, to me, the way that I heard him talk to his, his family and, I guess just after so much time, I just I just fell in love with him. And I remember when I let him know that the one day, the first time I kind of let him know that, you know, and I mean this is gonna be terrible. I'm sorry, but <laughs> we were t- we were texting about the case and texting about whatever. And this has been, you know, we hundreds of hours and hours and hours that we've been working together. And I just one one day said, Can I ask you a question? And he said, Yes. And I said, do you want to kiss me? I had never met him. I had never met him. But I was just, I think I was feeling like we're finally getting somewhere. We've done this together. We've been through so much. And suddenly I was like, I just want to kiss this guy. You know, I just, and he tells me still to this day, like, I looked at my phone and I thought, did I look at that right? Looked at it again, you know? And then I, the pause was there on my end too. And I was like, oh my God, I should have never asked that question, you know? just responding with yes. And then I was like, Oh, sh-, you know, and that was it. I mean, that was, that was it. Then we went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know what he
1: looked like at that time?
0: Oh, no. Really? No. He didn't have social media or, you know, anything like that. And, um, I wasn't thinking about, I didn't really care what he looked like. You know, it was like oh, you're right. all of a sudden. And then I, and after I was hooked and I fell in love and I was, what do I do now? Like, And then I started thinking, you know, what what does he look like? And maybe he won't like what I look like, you know? And so it just didn't matter. It just didn't.
1: That's cool. So then when you met him for the first time, were you like, yes, this is is so right? Or what did you feel at that point?
0: I really feel like it was more of a chemistry thing than physical attraction. He looked, I mean, I looked at him and I was like, that's Jeremy, you know, it was like, it's just like, I already knew, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, but I still felt a little bit shy about the whole thing. Like I was kind of, cause we were working and I was embarrassed. Like I didn't even mention the text where I asked him if he wanted to kiss me. And so the <laughs> first time we met, we were working, you know, when we met face to face and we went out and, and had a uh, dinner after we got done working. I mean, just, you know, dinner and a beer, talk about the case, whatever, and I really just felt like I had known him my whole life. And so it just, there was never, I mean, never a weird moment of, this is wrong, you know?
1: And then how long until you guys got engaged?
0: Um, A year later.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Almost to the day. It was, yeah. Because the first time I actually met him in person was in March of 2016. And then um, we were engaged in March of 2017.
1: Any wedding plans then?
0: Um, Actually, you know, and no rushing it. I've been married a couple of times and um, just not rushing anything. But, you know, last year we had planned to just kind of elope alone, not tell anyone, come back and surprise everybody. So we literally booked a trip to Italy. I I hired... um, a celebrant out in Italy and we were going to go there and, you know, just do it and, and then just surprise everybody. And then the whole COVID thing happened. So our, our trip was booked for the, you know, we were supposed to be married on June 6th of last year and everything got canceled. So now we're kind of like, you know, Jeremy keeps saying, I, I just keep saying, I want it to be special. I want it to be, you know, something that we can, look back on and love, you know, love what we did or how we did it for the rest of our lives. And he's just like, maybe we need to just stop waiting and having reasons, you know, to to wait, but we'll see. I mean, (laughs) we're not going anywhere. So.
1: (laughs) I love it. That, that makes me super happy. And you guys, you both still work in law enforcement, right? Yes. Yeah. And what do you do? What do you guys do in law enforcement at this time?
0: So well, I'm, I'm not, you know, like out of the road or, or anything anymore. And I do miss that. I do miss the interaction with um, the community and, and the people and just face-to-face stuff. Um, I'm working at Indiana Haida. I work um, as an intel analyst for um, basically state, local, and federal law agencies, law enforcement agencies. So I have more of a, like, computer desk or computer job where I'm at a desk and I'm I mean, still helping, but um, in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Jeremy is still contracting through um, as a you know cold case investigator um, for Lake County Sheriff's Office here in Indiana. And he, he you know, it's not full time. He has another job that he does also because he kind of retired from, he was originally working with uh, Hobart PD and he took his retirement and... So like I said, he's still contracts, but you know, when he does work on these cold cases, he is amazing. And I, I just think he needs to do that full time. He's not done yet, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, he's really done some amazing casework. And I know because I've done the investigative work for some of it. And I mean, seriously, the two of us together do a lot of good work. <laughs> it's just financially we have to do what we what we have to do to, you know, pay our bills and whatnot. And there's many things that I wish we could do, um, and maybe someday we will be able to. As far as like investigations for people, I wish we could. I wish we could help more.
1: That's awesome. But so when he has a cold case, I, I don't know if it's if it's like a HIPAA thing, but can you help him work on that?
0: I have, yeah, yeah. That's what I. So like, that's you know, I we have like DEA, we have FBI, ATF. We have, you know, the state police, we have, and then all the local, you know, agencies as well. And, um, so I did for him what I will do for any of them, uh, the officers in the, in our area of responsibility. So yeah, he would just come to me cause he, you know, I mean, people don't know me here. They, I mean, they really don't know who I am or whatever. So I'm a new, I've been here a couple of years now. I've been here about three years, but it was weird because, um, they look at me as this new like girl or woman who started here that they're not sure what I know or how good I am at my job. So it's like, you know, we don't know her very well, so we're not going to bring her anything. (laughs) And I just, okay, you know, and Jeremy, of course, brings everything to me and together, you know, I'm able to help him, um, with, you know, the missing links that he needs to complete his things. And he has, he has literally solved, um, a couple of very
1: good cold cases. That's so interesting. That's why I
0: say, I mean, my dream was, you know, let's just do this on our own because there's families out there that are missing loved ones that, man, I've I've had people give me some, you know, through messenger, through social media, send me, please help this. Can you help us with that? And I've like looked at this whole, you know, these cases and, and been like, man, I really think we could do this, you know, but we don't have the the means to do it. We don't have the time to go out and do it for free. You know, I'm not going to tell these people, yeah, well, if you want to pay us so that we can do it. And it doesn't work that way. It's not, that's not why we would want to do it. We want to help them with, you know, bring closure. And Mm -hmm. so that's where my heart is. and, And I know that's where his heart is. And that's why I say maybe someday we'll be able to do that.
1: I think that's so cool because the purpose of my podcast is to encourage people to do better, be better and live better. And it sounds like you are doing that and you and him as a team really do that as well.
0: We try honestly. And he, he rubs off on me, even though I'm, I've got a ways to go. Cause he really is, he really truly is a, a good person. He's, he really is. I I'm, I've never met anybody like him. Um, yeah, he has, he can get mad, you know, he can get um, upset at times, but it takes a lot, and you know I was a little more you know, I had a shorter fuse, and I wasn't as patient or whatever and and he's helped me get better with that. so but both of us are I think that's why you know when we came together and started working on this case, it things happened so quickly. I mean, within three months of him working with me, um, we had a confession. You know, we had answers and prior to me and him working together, I knew things, I had things, I had a lot of, um, you know, you know, evidence that wasn't going to, to help me, just circumstantial and I, I would have never gotten from, you know, A to Z until he came into the picture. So it was like, I don't know, just very thankful, very grateful.
1: Sounds like he completes you.
0: It sounds like it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I am so grateful that you were here today to talk about your journey um, through your career and through this case because you you've done a lot of good for a lot of people and I think that's very admirable
0: thank you I appreciate that thanks for the interest thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast If you like what you hear,
1: share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.